so this is our Simondon reading group continuing with Individuation, Volume 2. Um, we're uh, on the history of the notion of the individual, uh, picking up from page 584 of the PDF uh, at the section heading. Oh, sorry, I'm on the wrong page. Where are we? Uh, sorry, 591 of the PDF, uh, the section heading, the 18th century. Um, so last time we, we looked quickly at Malbranche and uh, didn't have a lot to say because none of us really knows his work. Um, but there's this um, phrase that Simondon um, picks up from Malbranche and actually um, he, he uses it in uh, volume one a few times as well in the, uh, uh, in the part on psychic individuation, this idea that, um, uh, that from Malbranche that we have um, this sort of um, uh, inner motion or inner tendency to always go further. Um, uh, I forget the exact translation of how it's uh, presented here, but um, um, it's this kind of um, inner tendency that the human being has to uh, always sort of push further and progress and uh pursue individuation and not be sort of stuck at one stage um, or one sort of uh, form of individuation. Uh, and so this, this is a principle or this um, idea that Simon Don takes up from Madranche and um, uh, sort of incorporates into his own ideas in uh, the volume one of individuation. Um, but we didn't see much in Madranche that we wanted to sort of um, hold on to. Um, in the Leibniz section, um, it was so again, there was the question of individuation for Leibniz, um, where, where Leibniz sets out his philosophical system to a large extent in opposition to Spinoza. Um, so instead of having this one substance of which everything is a mode, we have um, uh, an infinite number of substances. Every um, portion of matter uh, in the universe is a, is a substance. Um, and um, Simondon analyzes some of the uh, consequences of this notion of this infinite number of substances and uh, conceiving of individuals as substances. And so one of the consequences for Leibniz is that we have to, um, uh, we have to sort of treat each substance as self-contained. Um, he, he uses the expression that um, the monads or the substances have no windows into which qualities could climb in and out. And, and so we we can't conceive of um, interaction of substances uh, in the sense that maybe a, a more straightforward um, understanding of the uh, relationships between entities would would present it. So we can't think of like heat being uh, heat as a quality being uh, sort of passed from one substance to another. We instead have to think of um, each uh, substance or each entity having its own uh, sort of life history or its own course of development in which one uh, loses heat and the other one gains heat, but um, not as any sort of uh, passage from one to the other. Um, and then, uh, and so this conception uh, requires us to kind of uh, take the entire life history of the substance to be sort of um, prepared at the beginning or contained in the concept of that substance at the outset of its creation. So the example that Leibniz gives is um, the, the true concept of Julius Caesar. If you have the concept that fully grasps uh, the essence of Julius Caesar, um, this concept contains within it um, the 
the fact that that he would cross the Rubicon, the fact that he would be assassinated by Brutus and and company, uh, like every event that occurs in the life of Julius Caesar is contained in the concept of Julius Caesar. Um, and so this, of course, raises um, the problem of theodicy or the problem of evil. Um, so if God creates the universe um, in such a way that every event that happens to every entity in that universe is uh, already sort of predestined or already um, built into the concept of those entities at, at the outset, uh, then it seems as if God is responsible for all of the uh, evil that happens in the world or everything um, all the suffering, everything bad that happens in the world uh, is something that God created. And so Leibniz's um, sort of attempt to, to deal with this problem is to argue that um, there's a kind of um, uh, maximization of reality in in the world that, that God um, performs. So there's, there's sort of two orders of necessity within God's creation of the world or within God um, so there's the the logical or metaphysical necessity, which um, concerns which essences are are um, possible, so uh, are capable of perform for of um, producing a world together. Um, so the essence of Julius Caesar, which involves him being assassinated, and the essence of Brutus, which involves him assassinating Julius Caesar. Those two essences are possible, so they can they can join together to form a world. Um, whereas maybe some other essences would, would not be compossible. Um, and uh, so this is a, a, a metaphysical necessity that um, uh, determines which essences are, are compossible. Uh, and then out of this sort of um, set of essences and the set of possible worlds that can be produced out of these essences, God selects through moral necessity, so not a metaphysical necessity, but a, a moral necessity, uh, selects the one that... that um, contains the most reality. So out of all the essences that, um, out of all the possible worlds that consist of possible essences, God selects the one that contains the most reality. Uh, and so one other formulation that we talked about that Leibniz gives is the, um, uh, the greatest richness of phenomena with the simplest laws. Uh, so the idea is that um, uh, the world is set up in such a way that um, as many different kinds of phenomena um, are produced with the the simplest possible laws or or the simplest possible general principles of compossibility of essences, uh, and um, and so when when Leibniz talks about this world as being the best possible world, he doesn't mean uh, the best possible world for human beings, um, but rather the world that contains the greatest amount of essence or the greatest amount of reality, um, and um, so this is supposed to be uh, a kind of um, uh, answer to the problem of evil or the, or the theodicy problem. Uh, it's meant to um, explain why God would create the world the way it is, even though from our human perspective, it, it seems to contain uh, evil and suffering uh, and so on. Um, so there's a, uh, it's only from our sort of limited perspective that the world um, seems to have these uh, this evil and suffering in it. Um, Whereas from the perspective of God uh, or from the universal perspective, there's uh, the, the world is actually the, the most uh, perfect it could be in the sense of expressing or um, realizing the most reality possible. Uh, and so whether that's a, a satisfying answer or not, I think is uh, another question. But um, 
that's sort of how Leibniz tries to deal with that problem. Um, and um, yeah, so I think that's what we talked about mostly last time. Uh, so we'll begin this time with a, a brief section on the 18th century as a whole, and then have a long discussion of uh, Rousseau that will probably last um, for this session and then into the next session. Um, so um, if someone else would um, like to uh, start reading the 18th century section. Uh, yeah, I can read. I'll just read this whole thing. The 18th century. Returning to what is original about man, the thought of the 18th century valorizes the particular qua negation of the universal, as though the universal were something artificial, something non-real. The individual consequently becomes the concretely singular and original being. But then it is the notion of order as creative force uh, of universality that disappears. The being is no longer defined as that which possesses within it a capacity for constructive order, or which, con which contains within its complete individual notion something of the order of the divine will, something that the order, something of the order that the divine will has rendered a contingent real, whereas the divine understanding would grasp the necessity of this order the best, or as affirmative particular essence, albeit as interiority. Nevertheless, the, the paradox of individuality is revealed in yet another way. This individual originality cannot be absolutely terminated in existence alone. It not only needs to exist, but needs to express itself in order to be. Individuality seeks its complement in another form of information than order, the information of communication. Instead of constructing or being constructed or uniting the will with naturing nature, the individual expresses itself. But the paradox of individuality is expressed in the fact that this expression becomes essentially ambiguous. The individual is destined to express itself, and this act of expression reacts on the individual structure. Subjective judgments are consequently submitted to a necessary ambivalence. The individual's interior and exterior communicate through consciousness, and the problem of individual unity is no longer that of the soul and the body, but that of the relation between the expressed being and the unexpressed being. For the fundamental difficulty persists to make information coextensive with the being uh, is merely an optative and cannot serve to explain the initial reality of the individual being. The logical paradox of the 17th century here becomes here becomes a moral paradox. Expression in itself is profanation and consecration all at the same time, and it shows in each act the best and the worst of human activities, whence the essential ambivalence of expression as information for the individual. In the search for unity through unicity, the individual splits into two. So it seems like maybe the, the general idea here is that um, in trying to think the individual as a unity without accounting for its genesis, the 18th century runs into the same kind of participation problem. But here it's between, uh, I guess, the unexpressed part of the individual and the expressed part. Yeah, I think um, we can... so we can put this into perspective of um, sort of some of the, I guess, epochs of the individual that Simondon has um, set out in his, in this history that we've been going through. So there's like you know, the problem of participation that we saw in ancient Greek philosophy, um, which has to do with um, how the individual is connected to something uh, sort of outside of itself, either um, through mediation by a community or uh, through sort of uh, solitude and separation from the community. Uh, uh, so there's these sort of two uh, contrary impulses uh, that uh, animate Greek philosophy um, in terms of how the individual um, can 
engage in participation in the ideas or in something uh, external to itself. Um, and then we saw in um, the early modern philosophy, uh, so in the, the 17th century, um, Simon Don uh, presents the, the sort of uh, organizing principle as being the one of the principle of construction. Um, so the, the problem that uh, these philosophers are presented with is how to construct um, uh, an individual or how, how the object of, of knowledge is constructed for the individual. Um, and uh, what, we're, what we're sort of passing to now in the 18th century is a, a problem of expression instead of construction. So the, the problem for um, the individual now is to express itself. And um, so the, the sort of paradox here is that um, uh, it, when, you, when you, this sort of notion of expression suggests that we want to sort of take what the individual already is, um, the, the unexpressed nature of the individual, and just take that nature and then express it. So it, the the result of the expression should be um, the same content as the what was contained in the individual before the expression. Um, but if we make if we can consider this expression process as being something essential to what um, the individual is, then uh, just by virtue of that expression process itself, the individual has undergone some sort of change. Um, so the the result of the expression is not what the express what the uh, individual was before the expression. Um, so um, uh, if we think of, for example, like um, performing an action of some kind, you have an intention. Um, I don't know to write a great poem or whatever, um, and you uh, perform some action and you write a poem, and it turns out it's not so great. It's uh, kind of a mediocre poem. Um, uh, so your your intention and your the result of your action don't match each other. So your expression um, doesn't sort of uh, express the content that you wanted to express. Um, and so only uh, only when the expression matches the uh, uh, unexpressed content is is the expression um, sort of uh, fully adequate. Uh, but then at the same time insofar as you are the creator of this great poem, um, you are no longer the same individual as you were before the creation of this great poem. You, you have transformed yourself. Uh, and um, uh, by taking expression to be something essential to what an individual is, you make this transformation uh, sort of uh, inherent to the individual. Um, so the expression has to both um, at, has to, at the same time express without transforming what the individual already was and then also transform the individual into um, sort of the fullest realization of that individual. Uh, and so this is the kind of paradox that the 18th century tries to deal with in various ways. Um, how, how can we understand expression, uh, these two different aspects of expression at the same time? Um, and uh, this is also sort of uh, reflected in the, the two... Um, uh, aspects of expression in the sense that um, expression is a kind of um, profanation. So you're taking something, this sort of uh, inner reality of the self or this sort of sacred um, reality of the self and you're sort of exposing it to the world uh, and, and you risk sort of uh, profaning this uh, sacred reality of the self. Um, and then at the same time, it's a kind of consecration in the sense that you are um, taking some element of the external world, whether it's like linguistic um, material or something like that, and you're sort of consecrating it with the, um, the 
this sacred quality of the self, this sort of inner um, virtue of the self. Um, and so the expression has both of these aspects at the same time, precisely because expression is this kind of paradoxical notion. Um, and, and so um, we'll see this with the, the section on, on Rousseau about, you know, the relationship between uh, sort of the inner, um, the inner self and the expression of that inner self and the sort of paradoxes you, you run into when you try to um, explain this, uh, this, this relation between the, the inner and the outer. Okay, um, so yeah, this, this little bit on the 18th century is sort of a, a preview of what we're going to see in the next few sections. So um, let's sort of dive into the concrete analysis of the Rousseau section. So if someone else would like to read the first uh, page or so. Uh, I, I can take it? Sure. Uh, Rousseau. This is the approach we find in Rousseau. From the start, Rousseau notes that each individual knows only himself. Quote, I have often noticed that even among those who most pride themselves in knowing man, which hardly knows anyone but himself, it is even true that someone can know himself. End of quote. Self-knowledge does not arrive without the expression of this knowledge, because the rapport to others is eroded with information here and is the equivalent of a Cartesian order. It is not to refute the other judgment that Rousseau wants to make himself known, but his essential is the expression that some practical research in opinion. Beneath worldly opinion, there is the relation between subjects, uh, and this relation is what has the power to arrange and give value to subjective realities. Such an act of expression is precisely above any apologetic intention for it is a superior in its constitutive power to any reality that it could, it could defend. This expressive potential is manifested by the experience of the moral wound that we feel when we see ourselves disfigured and misunderstood in the judgments and others bear upon us. The fact that judgment is inadequate is more serious than its depreciative aspect. In this case, the, the injury is less offensive than the error, which renders us unrecognizable, foreign to ourselves, disordered and disorganized in the judgment that others bear upon, our, upon us. Whereas for most, it's not praise or blame, but the coherence and truth of the image of the subject in those judgments. Quotes, I made these observations above all in relation to myself. That in the judgment I have made of others, having soon felt like a separate type of being, but in those that others have made of me. End of quote. The analysis of the preamble to the uh, manuscript shows that for Rousseau, Rousseau, the fact of making oneself known not only has the value of the of a truth, also the value of an act of affirmation in being. This expression of self-knowledge is a veritable method with the universal meaning. Quote, Concerning these remarks, I resolved to take an additional step for my readers in, in the knowledge of men by drawing from them, if possible, this unique and erroneous rule of always judging the heart of others by my own. While, on the contrary, it would be necessary most often to know one's own heart oneself based on reading into the hearts of others. End of quote. Rousseau wants to attain more, more than a comparison of oneself with another because the comparison remains at the level of the terms. 
order is a reality of relation that requires a, the, the non-confusion of, of terms. It is by becoming aware of the differences that pulls us to another person that we can attain this stable and non-relative knowledge of our being. Expression is the act within which the difference, differences of individuals acquire stability. This is why one must, quote, know oneself and another, end of a quote. Afterwards, the wound of the soul, the regret of having been judged badly by others, misunderstood, is a profound experience because it gives rise to the feeling of essential differences and introduces them into existence by expressing them so as to publish them in a way in which they are participable for everyone. By publishing his essential differences, the individual escapes from solitude. In the relation with others, there is a reactive cordiality between essential differences and the communication between individuals. The fact that essential differences are invested in the relation confers an infinite reality, an infinite fruitfulness onto this relation. In this endeavor of expression, gravity and emphasis are explicable more nobly than by a Husso, Lusso, Husso's pride. Pride instead encourages isolation. Only vanity urges on the world to make oneself known and well-judged. And, and yet, Rousseau is not a vain person. Yeah? Or stop? Or continue? Con oh, sorry. I realized that was on mute. Yes, let's stop here. Thanks. Uh, you're um, welcome. Uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, regarding pronunciation, Rousseau, Rousseau, like in French style, which one is the right one? Uh, well, it is a French name, so uh, you can pronounce it in French if you'd like. Mm, okay, thank you. Um, yeah, so um, for, uh, for Rousseau, we have um, this sort of uh, um, uh, desire for self-expression um, precisely because he considers himself to be um, a singular individual, uh, so he he's different from other people, um, and it's precisely because of this difference that he feels the need to express himself um, uh, and sort of uh, make himself known. And he um, he he sort of sets out in in some of his like some of his autobiographical writings, he sets out the the goal of um, sort of um, correcting the public's image of him. He thinks that there is a kind of um, conspiracy against him in the and we'll see more on this later but um he thinks that people are, are sort of um uh telling stories about him that are um inaccurate and he wants to correct the public's image of himself uh but that's a sort of secondary um consideration as opposed to the just the the sort of pure self-expression um that uh that um motivates more fundamentally the the whole project of autobiography um and and so he wants to um, sort of um, present this singular entity that is himself um, to the world and allow the world to sort of um, know him as he really is, as opposed to um, having a, a sort of um, a distorted perception of him. And, and so, it, it, again, it's not so much that he, um, he thinks that um, he's being unfairly treated and, and that he wants to sort of uh, improve his... Um, standing in the world for some sort of practical purpose uh, by, by sort of correcting that um, interpretation that the world has of him. But it's, it's the sort of quality of being known uh, as such that he's seeking. So he, he wants to make himself known as he really is, as opposed to um, 
allowing the world to have this um, distorted image of him. Uh, and so um, it's, yeah, so it's precisely in his singularity and the fact that he's a, a, an individual who is different from everyone else, um, that uh, he has this desire for self-expression. Um, and so he wants others to judge him um, uh, as, a, as a singular individual and not sort of um, uh, compare him to others and, uh, and sort of um, judge him in accordance with other people's uh, form of existence or sort of style of, of living. Yeah, so we'll, we'll see. Um, so Angus has, has posted his comment in the chat here. Um, it seems like the problem is that there is a non-identity of expression versus subject of expression. Um, yeah, so we'll see more on this as we continue um, with this section. But um, as soon as you have this um, sort of goal of making yourself known, of expressing yourself as you are, um, uh, then um, the, this paradox of expression that we, we saw in the, the beginning of the 18th century section um, sort of arises because um, if this if this uh, self-expression, if, if making yourself known is something that is sort of um, of fundamental importance to you, uh, to who you are as a, as a person, as it was for Rousseau, um, there's, uh, then um, it starts, it sort of becomes impossible to express yourself as you are because you, by, by virtue of expressing yourself, you change who you are. Um, and so there's he he sort of sets up this duality as we'll see later on between the the inner self and the external self, um, and he he tries to overcome this duality in various ways. But um, there there's this sort of fundamental split within the person that uh, that um, he he's unable to fully overcome. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next page or so. Um, if someone else would like to read, I can read a little bit. Uh, Y'all can hear me, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Just making sure. Okay. So solitude, solitude is the condition for this self-expression. The tranquility of the soul is in fact necessary for self-knowledge. The relation to oneself that knowledge provides is not profoundly different than the, from the knowledge of others and the relation to others. Congratulating one of his correspondents for withdrawing into solitude, Rousseau wrote, writes in 1739, when the lantern reveals nothing, it is indeed a necessity to deal with oneself and to take oneself, lacking anyone else, as a friend and confidant. But we must be somewhat acquainted with this confidant and this friend and know how and how much we can trust him. The perpetual, pardon, the perpetual nostalgia for the friend is to some extent satisfied by self-knowledge, which in the relation that it establishes consequently has the value of being. Furthermore, having experienced the world after the controversy of Le, Le, Mer Le, 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 Le Hermitage, when Rousseau, Rousseau, uh, Rousseau, can't get the French pronunciation down, uh, feels the need for solitude like a passion, the search for self-knowledge becomes a method, but still retains an important aspect of spontaneity. Readers, I think willingly about myself and I speak as I think, uh, quotes. The act of expression possesses its value within itself, independent of precision. In the end, I am persuaded, writes Rousseau to Don de, de Champ, Dom de Champ, that one always very well painted, when one is painting oneself, even when the portrait bears no resemblance. These words may remind us of Spinoza's when he said that the idea is not like a silent image paint. Self-knowledge is not a self-portrait. It is a work that has a constructive value. Again, quote, I will make something unique and I dare to say something truly beautiful. Self-knowledge immediately has the power to stabilize individual life by arresting the state of oscillation between the physical consternation provoking the slumber of the soul and the excessive feeling of misfortune 
which provides the force to fight for truth. This st stability of the reflexive state is expressed in a letter to Coinde on the 29th of March, 1766. With what will we be content in life if we are not content with the only man we cannot escape? This is how the confessions are a creation and a construction. The reveries reveal the same preoccupation. Again, quote, but myself detached from them and from everyone, what am I myself? This is what remains for me to seek out. And another quote, I should not and do not want to occupy myself any longer except with myself. It is in this state that I reprised the succession of the severe and sincere examination that I once called my confession from first reverie. At the beginning of the fourth promenade, then in a preface meant for the reveries but abandoned, Rousseau renovates the know thyself of the Delphic temple. This formula was ultimately written by Rousseau on the back of a playing card in 1776. Right, so we see here um, um, a further development of this notion of self-knowledge and self-expression. So there's this idea of the, um, the, the portrait um, that is always um, accurate, even if it's inaccurate in some respects. So even if you sort of de depict yourself um, in your self expression in a, in an inaccurate way, the, the fact of um, actually depicting yourself in this way is itself an expression of who you are. Um, so you, you end up revealing yourself even, uh, even if you sort of um, inaccurately depict yourself. Um, and so this, there's a, a sort of immediate um, relation between self-knowledge and self-expression here. So it's only by sort of producing this self-expression that you can truly come to know who you are. Um, uh, and so for, for Rousseau, this um, uh, exercise in autobiography is not just, um, it's not that he has this sort of self-knowledge um, already contained within himself, and then he just wants to share it with the rest of the world. It's by, by producing this self-expression in the autobiography, um, uh, it, it's in the, the exercise of producing it that you come to know yourself. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, so this self-expression is not just a, a kind of um, transfer of what is already contained within the self and uh, sort of passing it to other people. It's a kind of production of this, this self-knowledge. Um, uh, so it's a kind of active self-knowledge as opposed to uh, just sort of inspecting yourself um, your, in your sort of inner perception. And we can, um, I think, um, so the way Simonon puts it here is that uh, Rousseau renovates the, the know thyself of uh, the, the sort of ancient Greek formula of uh, self-knowledge. Um, and I think we can, um, we can take this, the ancient Greek formulation as, as meaning something like um, knowing one's own essence or, or having, um, having an understanding of what one really is. Uh, and this would be something that is kind of um, um, static in the sense that um, you, you sort of um, have a grasp of yourself uh, that's independent of the various circumstances in which you might find yourself or the various events that happen in your life. Uh, whereas for, for Rousseau, it's precisely through this um, sort of biographical uh, development that you come to know yourself. So uh, self-knowledge is a kind of production as opposed to a, a kind of um, contemplation for for this um, this uh, sort of self-expressive self-knowledge. Uh, maybe I'll also um, talk about a little bit about this um, uh, this concept of solitude and the necessity for solitude. Um, we saw in volume one 
the um, discussion of the ordeal of solitude in the uh, sort of access to the trans individual, um, how the, the individual is, is capable of uh, reaching something beyond itself and having access to something like a collective by means of this ordeal of solitude. Um, and here we have a similar kind of um, um, uh, sort of self-expression through withdrawal from the world. So it's only by, uh, by solitude and um, sort of being at home with yourself or being alone with yourself that you are capable of producing this kind of self-expression that can be shared with others and that can allow others to know you as you really are. Um, uh, so there's a, a, a sort of um, reciprocity of the solitude that is required for self-knowledge and then the um, kind of access to a collective or this um, uh, connection with others that can only be achieved through um, going through this uh, solitude. Yeah, that stuck out to me as well. And I, I also wanted to see volume one in this idea that the relation to the self is not really different in kind from the relation to others, um, which is why the, can't find where he says it now, but um, yeah, the line about the nostalgia for the friend being satisfied by self-knowledge, um, because obviously in volume one, the it's the, kind of affective relationship of the individual to itself, or I guess to the pre-individual share that it carries around, but by itself that um, grounds or makes trans individuality possible. Yeah. So um, in the same way, as, so in volume one, he, uh, at, at, at one point in, um, I believe it's part four, he makes a distinction between the individual and the subject. Um, so the individual would be something uh, that results from individuation uh, whereas the subject would be the individual plus the um, sort of portion of the pre-individual that it that it bears within it, or the something that has not yet been individuated, um, and uh, I think we can likewise um, see uh, here with Rousseau this kind of um, self-relation um, as a, a kind of connection between something that is already constituted or already produced on the one hand, and something that is still um, undergoing production or undergoing uh, self-constitution uh, on the other hand. So in, in the act of self-knowledge, um, insofar as, as it's a kind of active production of oneself at the same time as uh, coming to know oneself, um, we, we start from uh, a sort of um, uh, entity that is already produced or uh, a self or an aspect of ourself that is already produced. Um, and then we um, sort of elaborate or, or um, construct or, or constitute um, through the, the process of self-knowledge, um, we sort of develop ourselves further and um, undergo a further individuation. Uh, so the, the subject, which contains this portion of the pre-individual within it, um, undergoes a, a further individuation. Um, and it's precisely through this further individuation that we have access to this uh, trans individuality or this um, uh, connection with others that that makes up the collective. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, I'll read the next. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, I'll read the, about a page. Okay. Nevertheless, the paradox of individuality still manifests in Rousseau from the beginning of the endeavor through a splitting. This splitting is from the start of splitting in time. Rousseau attempts to write his life at the age of 50. It is not the man of today that he expresses, but the man of yesteryear. Quote, 
I write the life of a man who is no longer, but whom I have known well, whose living soul has known only myself and who deserves to be known. This man is myself, end quote. And yet this splitting is what permits recurrence and expression. Memory becomes the instrument of self-knowledge. However, memory is not a simple communication between the real self and the past self. I am my past. I cannot become conscious of this lived and living past, for it is the condition of all consciousness. But I can express it through the act of my present self, which is realized and realizes it in this expression. The present and of the act of expression makes the present self react upon the past self and consequently makes the self react upon itself because the present self retains the potentials of the past self. Because the past engages the present, it continues to be in potential form in this present that it takes it up again. Consequently, the past animates the present, which orders the past. This schema of the recurrence of causality, characteristic of individuality, manifests throughout all the, the aspects of the unfolding of this longer endeavor. The evocation of this past happiness is in the retreat to Wooten, in the peacefulness of the present. The memory really actualizes in enjoyment. Quote, all the memories which I had to recall were for me so many fresh enjoyments, unquote. On the contrary, when the conflict with Hume and the brothers of the continent disrupt Rousseau in July 1766, the narrative Rousseau takes up again becomes an act of pleading, full of judgments and moral reflections, like, for example, the episode of the stolen ribbon. The universe of conspiracy begins to organize in the present. Consequently, the evocation of the past is a defense, just as the present is a defense. This is the time at which Rousseau writes books 7 to 11 of the Confessions. The self appears to him as a third person then. Quote, I have here, he writes to Madame de Boufflers on the 5th of April, 1766, a man who is of my acquaintance and whom I long to know better. The company that I'm going to connect to him will prevent me from desiring any other. I esteem him enough not to fear the intimacy to which he invites me. End quote. This man that he is appears to him like an immense chaos and a dark and filthy labyrinth. Having ordered this chaos, self-knowledge primarily aims at a what am I and not a who am I. This demand for order and totality is so great, so essential, that it prevails against the objections arising from the classical conception of the meaning of the moral work, edification. Quote, if I silence anything, I will not know anything about it, as far as everything stands, as far as everything is one in my character, and as far as this strange and singular assemblage needs all the circumstances of my life to be revealed. Um, yeah, let's stop here. Um, right, so... Uh, one so one bit I'll, I'll just mention here um, that is just sort of alluded to um, is the this episode of the stolen ribbon that that uh, Simon Dole mentions. Um, so this is uh, a passage in the Confessions, um, one of the earlier books. I forget which one, but Rousseau um, is working as a, a kind of domestic servant in a in a, a noble household um, as a, a teenager or in his early twenties. I'm not exactly sure, um, and um, the uh, one of the um, members of the family that he's working for has this um, uh, beautiful ribbon that uh, Rousseau decides that he wants and he, he steals it and, and hides it. Um, and uh, one of the other servants gets blamed for it. Uh, and there's a sort of um, uh, interrogation scene where the, the whole, whole family and all the servants and everyone are, are all there. And um, the, the father of the household is, um, uh, interrogating this servant and, and blaming her for stealing this ribbon. Uh, and she keeps denying it and uh, eventually gets fired and uh, uh, sent away because of it. And, and Rousseau, of course, is there the whole time watching, knowing that he's the one who stole it and, and he doesn't say anything. Um, and he, um, he, you know, includes this uh, shameful episode in his confessions. Um, and he, he says, um, 
he he doesn't sort of try to justify what he did, but he wants to. Um, he says he wants to express everything about himself, including the shameful episodes, um, because everything is connected in his in his life. So if he if he were to leave out even these shameful episodes, then he would make the rest of the biography incomprehensible. Um, he wouldn't sort of fully express himself uh, or or produce this self knowledge in this uh, full sense if he left out any episodes. Um, no matter how how shameful they are, quite quite surprising because I just heard heard about the who saw like uh, how immoral immoral he was because of regarding his family like kind of you know like he uh as far as I know like he was not a responsible father and then very very I mean the a lot, a lot of things like all together. That's why he tried to like uh, justify, as you said, like justify his behaviors and then kind of like the gaps between his ideas and his actual life. That that's why he just like uh, wrote books something like that. It's really contradictory and hypocritical. Yeah, he is definitely a, a complicated person. Um, like there's lots of different uh, sort of aspects of his life that are sort of hard to fit together. Um, like um, yeah, so. I don't know this part. I've only read parts of the confessions, um, but um, he later in life. Uh, so in um, is it the discourse on inequality or or uh, I forget which one. Anyway, he um, um, he um, argues that um, mothers should take care of their children rather than uh, giving them up to nurses, which was a sort of a common practice at the time for wealthy women. Um, they would. Uh, you know, give their children to be more or less raised by these nurses um, until they were, you know, I don't know, five or six years old or whatever. Um, and uh, uh, and then they would take them back at that point. Um, and uh, Rousseau argues against this practice and he thinks it's sort of um, uh, uh, like, it, he thinks it's unnatural in the sense that it sort of separates the child from its mother and uh, prevents them from forming the, the kind of bond that they're supposed to form. Um, but then at the same time, his own uh, children, he um, put them up for um, either, either put them up for adoption or, or had them raised by nurses in the same way that he criticized um, uh, um, in, in his writings. Uh, so, yes, I think we can certainly regard it as hypocritical. Um, uh, but um, he, you know, one thing we can sort of... Um, uh, praise him for, I guess, is for not hiding all of this stuff. Um, he, he, um, you know, includes all of these things in his uh, autobiography that uh, that we can, you know, blame him for um, as far as their actions. But he he doesn't hide them from the world. He wants to express himself um, in in this full sense, including all of the, the uh, shameful parts of his biography. Yeah, at the same time, definitely also like cast a question, like how much like individual, uh, psychic individuation and the collective individuation can can go together. Maybe like it would definitely like inspire the uh, and also kind of the uh, I'm not sure. Maybe like we can think of kind of a psychoanalysis of the other kind of philosophers like Lacan or other other people could have some ideas of also. Or who's that? The Deleuze, Deleuze might have some interest in him too, like because it's quite interesting, kind of like a split, like of the 
the collectivity and the individuality. Yeah, that's definitely the case. Um, and, and it's interesting that you mentioned psychoanalysis because there's, um, well, there is some mention of psychoanalysis here, but there, there's this very strange relationship that Rousseau had with um, uh, this woman, Madame de Varan, um, who he, um, I don't know how much older she was than, than him, but um, he, he sort of um, treats her as a surrogate mother because his, his mother died when, when either when he was born or, or when he was very young. I can't remember exactly. Um, uh, he treats her as a sort of surrogate mother, but she eventually becomes his mistress as well. Um, and so this woman that he addresses as Mama um, eventually becomes his his mistress. Um, and uh, he even says himself after their first um, uh, romantic encounter that he he felt as if he had committed an incest. Um, so there's obviously a lot that um, psychoanalysis can sort of read into this relationship that he had with his surrogate mother. Um, um, and, uh, yeah, there's been, there's been lots of, um, uh, sort of secondary literature on this strange relationship, um, and, uh, sort of analyzing Rousseau as a, as a person, like his, his, uh, uh, psyche, I guess you could say, um, is, is a, a kind of, um, academic, um, uh, research field, I guess, um, like there's, there's tons, like, because, precisely because he gives so much material to work with, um, it, it allows us to uh, to sort of perform some of these analyses on him as a person. Yep, thank you. A little strange that the Rousseau section is so long, and it seems like there are more quotes in this in this section than there are in, in previous sections on other philosophers. Yeah, it's, it, it is very odd that he would have like a, a 10, 15 page long section on, on Rousseau and then no section on Kant in a sort of history of, yeah. of philosophy. Um, uh, I think possibly the, yeah, and you're right that there are definitely more quotes here than in previous sections. Um, and I think possibly the reason for that is because um, uh, Rousseau is not like a, a sort of um, systematic philosopher in the way that Kant or someone like that is, where you can just sort of summarize his doctrines in a sort of straightforward way. Uh, and, and even uh, like uh, in this text uh, on Rousseau, Simondon, uh, focuses on the autobiographical text and not on the um, the essays, uh, you know, the, uh, the the essay on the social contract and on um, uh, the origins of inequality and the origin of language and all these ones. Um, so he um, he he focuses precisely on the less systematic or the less um, I guess directly philosophical texts. And so extracting some sort of philosophical meaning from those texts is um, is. Uh, uh, sort of an operation that requires more um, more interpretation than just saying like here's a summary of of what Rousseau said about um, the origin of inequality or whatever uh, other topic. Um, so he he sort of I guess wants to um, include a lot of these citations to sort of uh, support his interpretation and uh, um, support his. Uh, his reading of the the sort of philosophical content into the uh, into these autobiographical texts. Uh, and one other point that I wanted to mention in that last bit uh, we just uh, went through is um, this relationship with time. Um, the what what Simon Don here calls the recurrence of causality uh, in in the sort of temporal self relation that is realized through self knowledge. Uh, and we can also compare this to a passage in Volume One. Uh, on the Kogito, um, where where um, 
Simon Dong analyzes the cogito in terms of um, the the past and future self or the past and present self. Um, so the in in performing the cogito, there's um, a kind of uh, temporal distanciation of the self from itself. Um, so you you uh, perform the act of doubting, and then you that that act of doubting is immediately sort of transferred into the past, and then you have to um, sort of connect your your present act of doubting with this past act of doubting, and um, you have to sort of unite them into one self. You have to um, treat the the past act of doubting as part of who you still are now. Um, and likewise, in the autobiographical um, practice that Rousseau uh, institutes here, he so he's writing um, as a relatively old man um, about his youth and uh, his whole life history. Uh, and so he has to um, uh, sort of separate himself from himself. He has to sort of set himself up as a himself as a young man up as an object um or the the also as an old man to um to analyze and to present to the world uh but then at the same time he also has to sort of treat this um separate uh younger self or past self as um part of who he is now uh and so there's a kind of um circular causation i guess where the past um is what makes the present what it is, is, is what sort of brings about the uh, form of the present. Uh, and then at the same time, the present sort of goes back into the past and organizes the past and sets it into uh, a, a sort of chrono chronological order that is comprehensible and uh, expressible. Uh, so there's this kind of kind of circular uh, relational causality between past and present. Uh, re regarding that, actually, the part you read, uh, what uh, also said that like, uh, he seemed to have an uh, interest in what am I, like not who am I, that part. So what uh, also was interested in was the elements of, I mean, what composes of, uh, composes of the, the, the human, not the, um, the transformation of the identities, like uh, totally, like kind of like the past of me is like a part of, a present of me, something like that, by doing the, like, how, what kind of elements, like, it consists of consists of the the human being like as a whole. So he focused on like the elements itself, like a, that the possibility of transformation of the identities, like from the past to the uh, the the future, uh, present to the future. Every every phase we can be new, like not that kind of thing. But the as you mentioned, like something like a repetitive uh, recycling, uh, not recycling, like a recirculation, something like that. Yeah, I think so. That yeah, that's a good um, point to bring up this distinction between what I am and who I am. Um, and I think we can understand this distinction um, in terms of um, so the question who who am I um, would be a question sort of um, of situating yourself in relation to others, like which person am I or which social role um, am I do I occupy um, in the world. I think that's the, the type of question that Rousseau is not trying to, to ask. So he, he doesn't want to sort of compare himself to others and say, which person am I or, or which which kind of person am I? Um, he wants instead to sort of analyze himself into, um, uh, as you said, elements. So he wants to say, so what, what is it that makes up the singularity of, of this person that I am? Uh, uh, you know, which, which sort of um, elements of my life history have brought about 
um, this development into this person that I am now. Uh, and yeah, so it's, um, um, yeah, it, it, it's a different kind of question than sort of situating yourself in relation to others. It's a, it's a kind of internal excavation, I guess, of like all the, um, uh, all the events and, um, experiences that had to happen to, in order to lead up to, um, who I am now, or, or, you know, as the person writing this autobiography, um, I, I am this particular person because I went through all these experiences. Okay, thank you. Uh, oh, yeah, and 61 has also pointed to another sentence, which is uh, important here. Um, so there's the, the sentence, this demand for order and totality is so great, so essential, that it prevails against the objections arising from the classical conception of the meaning of the moral work, edification. Uh, yeah, so I think here, um, so the the sort of, um, so what, what Simon Doe is referring to with this, when, when he talks about the classical conception of the meaning of the moral work um, is that, you know, there, there's all these texts that are mostly sort of forgotten now, but these texts where the writers try to instill um, a sort of moral sentiment in the reader, um, they sort of depict these situations where you, um, you have this uh, um, moral reaction of uh, sympathy for someone in suffering or, or whatever other sort of situation is, is meant to inspire these sort of moral sentiments where you um, you learn to become a good person by um, sort of uh, going through these experiences in thought, uh, in, in reading a novel of, of, or a, a poem or whatever that is meant to be edifying. Uh, it's meant to instill this sort of moral sense within you. Uh, and Rousseau's work is definitely not um, uh, an edifying work in that sense. Um, even though it it's it is meant as a kind of moral work, um, so Rousseau um, depicts all these, uh, you know, everything that he does, and including the, the shameful actions like stealing the ribbon, um, um, and he doesn't um, he doesn't present uh, he doesn't present these actions for the sake of edification. He doesn't show how you know vice is punished and virtue is rewarded and and so on. He um, he shows these episodes because he wants to. Um, express himself as he is and not hide anything about himself. Uh, and uh, so this um, this process of self-knowledge or this process of um, expression of oneself is uh, a distinct project from the one of, um, of edification. And uh, it's because it's precisely because Rousseau argues that everything about himself is connected and uh, united with with everything else that he has to, um, uh, express even these shameful episodes, um, uh, whereas if his goal was uh, edification, he might sort of um, hide those episodes and only show the parts of himself that uh, lead the reader to, um, uh, you know, virtue and uh, being a good person and so on. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next bit if someone else would like to read. Are we at the conception? Yes. Okay. The conception of the individual that emerges from this reflexive Reflexive labor involves an initial aspect that is worthy of interest. We are full of prior impressions that, quote, we carry without us noticing, unquote. Rousseau notes this, quote, while probing in myself and looking in others for what these various manners of being are attached to, I found that they depended largely on the previous impression of external objects, unquote. So we are not completely ourselves, and things make us partly what we are. Here, Rousseau finds an inexhaustible foundation for individual originality. 
Um, under these conditions, the body has a power over the soul. Quote, everything acts on our, acts on our machine and consequently on our soul, unquote. This lesson will be taken up by Maine de Biran, Biran, who will propose to study the uh, rapport of the physical and the mental. The observations that Rousseau makes in Book 9 of the Confessions were to lead to a book that would have had the title Sensitive, Sensitive Morality or the Materialism of the Sage and was never completed. The difficulty in thinking individuality is expressed here by the obscurity of the reciprocal action of the physical and the moral, um, an action through which a perpetual possibility of splitting is perceived. Reduction to unity seems impossible and dishonest to Rousseau. He forcefully attacks the recently published English book, Research on the Soul, where, quote, by virtue of I don't know how many fine and entirely conclusive anatomical details, it is proven that there is no soul, since the author hasn't seen one at the origin of the nerves, unquote. And it's this reason that leads Rousseau in the second dialogue to criticize the claims of the, quote, philosopher surgeons. He prefers in the rapport of the physical to the moral to accept without comprehending the quote-unquote many contradictions by declaring that he does not seek to quote resolve them like a physicist unquote. Uh, refusing the materialist simplification, Rousseau nevertheless notes the influence not of the body but of objects in the external world, to what we today call the milieu on the soul and on the passions in particular. In letter 23 of the new Eloise, Saint-Preux expresses himself in the following way, quote, I admire the influence of the most insensible beings on our liveliest passions, and I despise philosophy for having no more effect on the soul than a succession of inanimate objects, unquote. This succession of inanimate objects is in fact constituted by the whole world in which Saint-Preux lives and perceives. The purity of the air is correlated with inner peace. Quote, it was there that I substantially disentangled in the purity of the air, where I was the real cause of the of the change of where I was the real cause of the change of my mood and the return of that inner peace I had lost for so long. Inversely, the imagination can act on the body. Quote, the source of my agitation resides in an overactive imagination, ready to take fright at everything and magnify it to the furthest, furthest extreme. The imagination consequently uh, predetermines the occurrence of real states. Quote, a sad penchant to foresee all the misfortunes that I fear and a cruel exactitude of fate to justify all my fears ensures my own, unquote. The soul prepares the body for the future that it organizes. The effect is just as, as intense for the past, quote, the description of my past pains would make me feel them all again. In my imagination, revived by the depiction of so many evils, would make them so painful to me that the best doctor in the world could not cure them, unquote. It is therefore necessary to discover an order for this reciprocal action in the movements of the body. Quote, from how many errors would reason be saved? How many vices would uh, be kept from being born? If we knew how to force the animal economy to favor the moral order and so often troubles, unquote. It is therefore possible to order the reciprocal action of the soul on the body. This is one of the ways in which psychological analysis, responding to the question, what am I? makes it possible to inform the original chaos. It kind of seems like here that the relation between the soul and the body is still a difficult question, um, even though not like, you know, logically impossible in the way that it was for 
Descartes. Yeah, here the, the relationship is, is not just between the soul and the body, but between the soul and the physical environment. Um, uh, and, and so Rousseau um, sort of um, depicts throughout the confessions how the environment, you know, uh, the sun and the, um, the plants around him and so on, uh, sort of influence his, his moral state or the state of his soul, um, um, that he, he's sort of um, set into a particular state by, um, by being in particular surroundings. And actually, there's a footnote here. Um, there's a couple later on as well um, that um, where Simondon sort of analyzes Rousseau as having a, a respiratory temperament uh, in the sense that he, um, he, um, his uh, emotional state is determined by the state of his respiration. And so when he's in the city, and there's no plants, and he uh, he feels this sort of oppressive sense of um, uh, not being able to breathe. Then he's in a, a sort of depressed moral state. Whereas when he's in the countryside and he smells the the flowers and the hay and whatever, um, then he feels a sense of exaltation, um, and he uh, he feels like he can breathe properly. Um, um, yeah, respiratory or mountain dwelling type. Um, uh, so Simon Dome, he, he sort of qualifies this um, um, explanation of, of Rousseau's temperament. And he says that, um, um, uh, yeah, so if a study of the morphology of temperaments was uh, certain enough, we would present Rousseau as um, uh, being connected to the respiratory or mountain dwelling type. Um, so he, he does sort of qualify his, his statement, but there are a few footnotes throughout this uh, section on Rousseau where he connects um, uh, Rousseau's uh, sort of moral state or emotional state to um, the environment uh, and in particular whether or not he's surrounded by plants. But yes, I think um, uh, in particular the, uh, the relation between the body and the soul is now understood as a, a sort of moral problem as opposed to a, a logical problem. So it's not a question of, you know, how do we make consistent the um, uh, the existence of the soul and the existence of the body, um, how do we sort of combine these two um, entities into a coherent system? The question is, you know, how as a, a particular person in the world, how do I um, sort of uh, find the surroundings in which I can sort of uh, express myself in the, in the most adequate way or where I can sort of be who I truly am uh, uh, by virtue of being in the proper surroundings? Uh, 61, is that is that passage from uh, the Discourse on Inequality um, uh, or that, that quote that you posted there? Oh, okay. So, yeah, the, so there's this um, quote from uh, Cassira's uh, essay on Kant and Rousseau. Um, so the distinction between l'homme de l'homme and l'homme de la nature. Um, so it would be like the, the man uh, uh, for other men or the man of men versus the man of nature, I guess, would be the... Uh, translation of, of that, but um, uh, yeah, so there's this opposition for, like, Rousseau constantly makes this opposition between sort of the the natural human being, so what, what a human being is uh, in accordance with with its own internal nature and then in, in sort of uh, harmony with external nature on the one hand, uh, and then the way that sort of um, the social world uh, constrains the, the natural um, sort of um, inclinations of the human being or the natural um, formation of the human being and put, puts the human being into the, these kind of um, uh, forms that are unnatural. 
Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next page. Uh, if someone else would like to read. Okay, let me read. But, but disorder, right? Yes, exactly. But disorder is not an ultimate victory. The term of the body, until then considered as a symbol, reveals itself to be double, charged with a rapport of incompatibility, to the point that the first effort to introduce order into the relation of the physical and the moral does nothing but move the problem of, of individual unity backwards. Its completion unmasks a deeper and incoercible duality of the vital dynamism, that of a temperament, which Hoso still calls a physical, physical constitution, end of quote. Quote, of all the men I have known, end of quote, says Hoso, judge of Zhang Jacques. Quote, the one whose character derives most completely from his temperament alone in Zhang Jacques, the end of quote. Second dialogue, di dialogue. In the confessions, he expressed the reality of forces that come from the head, from the heart, from the entrails, and from the disturbances of the blood. Quote, Two things, almost incompatible, are united in me in a manner which I am unable to understand. A very ardent temperament, lively and tumultuous, tumultuous, tumultuous passions, and at the same time, slowly developed and confused ideas which never present themselves until it is too late. End of quote. The second dialogue still expresses this internal contradiction of temperament. Also discovers in, in himself, quote, a mixed temperament, formed of apparently contradictory elements, a sensitive, passionate, or easily inflamed heart, and a dense and sluggish brain whose solid and massive parts can only be put in motion by prolonged and lively agitation of the blood. End of quote. The contra contradictory aspects of his temperament are thus opposites, like liveliness and slowness. These two movements are, are movements of life, and their contradiction cannot be resolved into unity within reflection. In this sense, it is at the moment when the wooden, wooden in 1766, Rousseau begins to sometimes feel life fade in him, and the fear of death arises that he revo reveals the most remarkable analysis of the other of living, of this other, other, uh, that possesses, possesses him since adolescence. At the same, at the time when Rousseau writes the Marshalhof in May 1766, quote, My nights are cool, my body suffers even more than my heart. Total loss of sleep reveals the saddest ideas to me. The air of the country combines the somber influence with all this, and I begin to frequently feel that I lived, have lived too much, end of quote. He describes in the following way the strength of adhering to nature. Quote, well, this just throws me into the immensity of beings, to combine them, to choose them, to appropriate them as I see fit, without shame and without fear. End of quote. Also, uh, then finds in the middle state between health and sickness a sort of equilibrium between pure existence without consciousness, which calls a strength, and life accompanied by consciousness, which requires a sickly state in the strongest sickness, the soul is alienated from itself. Quote, my soul, alienated from itself, is all in my body. End of quote. Writes Husserl to Melchorhoff, but full health is also harmful, a harmful state. Quote, I had, hate this robust health. Those people who have so much strength and so little life, it seems to me that I have lived only since I felt half dead. End of quote. Life conscious of itself is therefore a state of equilibrium between strength and sickness, vital activity, and the exercise of the soul's faculties, 
and then coexist, and it seems that temperament itself becomes unified in a stable modus vivendi. Continue. Right. Yeah. No. Let's let's stop here. Thanks. Welcome. Um, let's see. Yeah. So um, we had this uh, sort of opposition, this moral problem of the body and the soul, uh, or the how the soul is influenced by the physical world. Um, but then this problem uh, sort of uh, descends into the order of the body itself. So the body is not just one term um, in, this, in this opposition, but the body is itself sort of split into these two uh, contrary tendencies. Um, so he, he calls this um, the, um, or he talks about the opposition between the heart and the brain on the one hand, or, or something. he uh, also, I think we'll see this a little bit later, he talks about the distinction between life and force um, he, um, so he, he thinks that his temperament or the sort of constitution of his body is, uh, is itself contradictory in the sense that it, um, it has this, this kind of, um, uh, quick, um, reaction of the heart. So his passions are inflamed quickly, um, whereas his ideas, uh, or his brain, uh, responds slowly to whatever, um, circumstances are, are, uh, brought up, um. And so his his temperament has this sort of contradictory nature within it um, already. And uh, so even before um, the relation between the body and the soul is in question, the body itself or the physical temperament of the body is um, is uh, already contradictory. Uh, and to, to sort of manage this contradiction, he has to um, find this kind of intermediate state between health and sickness. Uh, so when you're fully healthy, when you have this uh, robust health, as he calls it, um, you you sort of uh, live without reflection. You you just sort of you know do the things that you are uh, want to do. You you perform your actions. You you engage in life in this uh, sort of straightforward way, um, and then you don't sort of reflect on who you are or what you're doing. Uh, and then in a state of um, sort of uh, sort of engaging self-reflection but when you're in this intermediate state when you, you're in a kind of um uh sickly state but not too sickly you um you have the you still have the strength to engage in self-reflection but you're not sort of immediately engaged in life in the way that you would be if you were fully healthy uh and so it's this intermediate state of sort of semi-sickness that that allows Rousseau to balance um these two contradictory uh, tendencies that he finds within himself uh, in in terms of his physical temperament, um, and and so there's a kind of um, paradoxical quality to the fact that he um, he can only uh, sort of express the vitality of life or uh, the the will to live uh, when he's in a state that he himself describes as being half dead, uh, where he uh, he is uh, sick um, and he he's he's old and he's sick and he, he feels like he's um, lived too long. And then he uh, is only in, in this state that he can sort of reflect on his life and uh, express the, the sort of um, uh, vitality of his existence in a previous state. Yeah. That's a good, uh, a good expression. So uh, yeah, 61 is put in the chat here that uh, uh, we can call this Rousseau's paradox of health. Um, and yeah, so that's a good um, expression for, uh, for this um, sort of uh, difficulty in um, grasping one's life, I guess we could put it. So, so insofar as one is healthy, one uh, just sort of acts and engages in life without reflection. And then 
insofar as one is sick, uh, one doesn't have the strength to uh, engage in the reflection. So, so we need to find this sort of intermediate state of uh, semi-sickness or partial sickness that uh, allows us to uh, reflect on our lives and, and sort of um, express the vitality of, of life. I think I'm not the only one who would uh, think of the process of uh, individuation, psychic like individuation, because the part, like, just like this part reminds me of the process of metastable phase, like uh, how potential is, like, I mean, coexistence in the metastable uh, state, like, as a, as a something, like a co- coexistence of some kind of, like, a state. Like, that, that, that's why, like, Thinking about the Kant, as far as I understand, the Kant must uh, have been like uh, the philosopher for older, kind of like the Hegel and the Kant tried to make uh, the world orderly. Uh, on, on the other hand, like the this kind of Rousseau, like it's a full of contradiction, like in a way, kind of like a, in a way the presentation of madness, and it it gives it definitely it might have given some kind of ideas of of um, I mean individual process to Simondon. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a that's a good observation. Um, he, um, yeah, so this state of semi sickness um, is a kind of uh, metastable state, as as you uh, as you pointed out. Um, so it, it, in a sense that it um, it uh, provides a certain kind of stability, um, but at the same time it contains potentials for further development uh, for this uh, self expression that we can only perform in this state of, of semi-sickness. Um, and uh, yeah, so it, it's, a, it's a metastable state in that sense. Uh, and I think you're right also that um, Simon Don draws a lot of his um, understanding of psychic individuation from his analysis of Rousseau. Um, I'm not sure sort of chronologically which comes first in terms of uh, which text Simon Don wrote first, whether he uh, sort of uh, developed his analysis of psychic individuation first and then wrote this text um, uh, uh, analyzing Rousseau or whether he did the analysis of Rousseau first and then went back and, and sort of uh, drew the lessons from it in, in the psychic individuation chapter. Um, but uh, he was writing both texts, you know, in, in around the same time in the late 50s. Um, and uh, yeah, so we can, we can definitely, I think, see um, a kind of... Um, reciprocal relation between the two, uh, that each one is sort of, we can understand each of these texts in connection with the other. Mm. Uh, thank you. Uh, one more kind of like a quick question about Marcia Is it the person, like, person? Oh, yes. Uh, so it's pronounced Malherbe. Malherbe. So it's another philosopher or friend of Rousseau? Somebody? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure who he is exactly, but someone that um, Rousseau was corresponding with. Um, so yeah, Rousseau writes letters to Malherbe and uh, uh, in his old age, and he's he's sort of expressing um, his state of sickness and old age and and his feeling of being half dead, uh, but in in connection or at, or because of this um, state of of sickness, he's able to express the vitality of his life um, in a way that he wouldn't be able to express if he were in a better state of health. Okay, thank you. I, I just like uh, found like a Wikipedia. It has a quatre lettres, which means like a four letters in between, like um, between. Yeah. The, yeah. Seems like. Yeah, that's right. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't. I don't know this um, correspondence at all. Um, uh, like all I know is what I read here in this text. Uh, 
um, Simon Don. So uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure like how many letters they wrote to each other and and so on. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Uh, apparently, he. Um, I'm just check- checking his um, uh, Wikipedia entry. So apparently, he contributed to the publication of the Encyclopédie, um, which we'll we'll see a bit more uh, later after the Rousseau section. So um, Diderot and D'Alembert, um, uh, who uh, Rousseau also sort of um, corresponded with, um, published the Encyclopédie um, in the late 18th century. Uh, which was a sort of um, compilation of scientific knowledge of the time and uh, um, sort of expressed the um, anti-clerical, anti-monarchist uh, philosophy of the, the 18th century. Um, and uh, I guess um, it's sort of a, considered an expression of um, uh, the sort of uh, uh, 18th century liberalism and um, um, the the sort of... Um, the third estate, the uh, the uh, the class that was neither nobles nor nor part of the clergy, um, the the sort of uh, self expression of the third estate um, prior to the French Revolution. Uh, so yeah, so Madeur was um, um, part of was involved in um, uh, publication of the Encyclopédie. Um, okay, so let's go on to the next bit. I think we have time for probably one more section. Uh, if someone else would like to read from this contradiction, I can read this one probably. This contradiction, sure. this contradiction. Oh, oh no problem. This contradiction in reciprocal action doesn't just manifest in the temperament taken in its totality as an opposition between liveliness and slowness. It also manifests within each of the tendencies and, be- for example. The sexual tendency and amorous behavior, Rousseau's masochism linking enjoyment with pain, victory with humiliation, triumph with the experience of punishment, deploys itself starting with the corporal corrections inflicted by Mademoiselle Lambrissier, all the way up to the amorous states of the mature man. Ardor and inhibition become associated and linked together in the complex development of a reciprocal action. Feeling arises, radiates outward, is transmitted to the body, is expressed in heat, words, and silent gestures, then abruptly restrains itself and reverberates within the soul under the blow of a painful inhibition. And yet, the reciprocal action integrates the play of external circumstances, which makes a development unpredictable. This is why sensuality is never the only force that creates an emotion. Rousseau declares in the second dialogue, sensual more than it should be, but not enough to be just that. There exists a, quote, moral sensitivity that is, quote, it, that, uh, quote, is nothing but the faculty of attaching our affections to beings which are foreign to us. He depends much more on his senses, and he would depend on them even more so if moral sensitivity didn't often provide diversion. Quote, beautiful sounds, a beautiful sky, a beautiful landscape, a beautiful lake, flowers, aromas, beautiful eyes, a pleasing look, all of which reacts on one's senses only after having pierced somehow into one's heart. Consequently, individual duality persists even in the liveliest outpouring of love. In the same way, Rousseau manifests the duality in the motivation and external appearance of sexual behaviors. Quote, do I not therefore have strict morals only because I have depraved tastes? Wonders Rousseau, who evokes the memory by thinking about the manifestations that psychoanalysis and psychopathology call masochism, autoerotic, autoerotism, exhibitionism, fetishism. This fundamental ambiguity survives under the apparent unity of adult behavior. Quote, when I become a man, that childish taste, instead of vanishing, only associated with the other that I never could remove from my sensual desires. 
The transition from simple masochism to the behaviors of the adult is continuous. Quote, I enjoyed acts of submission. I thus found a way to approach the object of my lust from some vantage, conflating the attitude of a suppliant lover with that of a penitent schoolboy. It is the same sexual pleasure that is coveted from Mademoiselle Lambercier's punishment to the terrors experienced at the feet of Madame Basile, to fall at the feet of an imperious mistress, obey her mandates or implore pardon, procures for Rousseau an enjoyment of the body and soul. Masochism therefore reaches the elevated style of courtly love. We understand why Rousseau demands a complete expression of his reality. What is seen is not the least part of what is. We see the apparent effect, the internal cause of which is hidden and quite often common in the preamble, preamble to the analysis. Four. The habit to express each feeling with antagonistic terms is explained in this way. Quote, Even though sometimes next to the ones I loved, I was carried away by the furies of a passion that deprived me of the faculty of seeing and of hearing, out of my senses and seized with a convulsive trembling in my whole body. Wait, I'll, I should repeat that quote. I think I emphasized it wrong. Even though sometimes next to the ones I loved, I was carried away by the furies of a passion that deprived me of the faculty of seeing and of hearing out of my senses and seized with a convulsive trembling in my whole body. I don't know. Sorry, that, the, the enunciation. Well, I, I'm, my brain isn't working today. Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, so this this is where I, um, um, there's the um, uh, psychoanalytic bit here uh, or the reference to psychoanalysis. Um, so... Rousseau uh, describes in the Confessions his um, experience as a, a young man, I'm not sure exactly, or a, a boy, I guess, I'm not sure exactly how old he was, where this um, uh, Mademoiselle Lambertier uh, thanked him and he, uh, as a punishment, and he uh, enjoyed this, um, and he sort of associated this experience with sexuality uh, for the rest of his life, uh, and... Um, so he has this sort of masochistic, um, uh, uh, I guess, uh, inclination in his uh, sexual desires um, that he um, sort of um, uh, he he connects with the the sort of tradition of courtly love um, of you know uh, having the setting up the mistress or the the uh, uh, um, yeah, the, the mistress as being someone to be obeyed and uh, to um, as a as someone who sort of dominates the um, the uh, desiring uh, party, um, and and so Rousseau um, treats this sort of courtly love tradition as a way of sort of expressing his masochism, um, and and so as he says here, he he um, combines the attitude of a. a of a suppliant lover with that of a penitent schoolboy. Um, and so he, he kind of um, combines the two into one strange uh, entity. And so obviously there's lots of like psychoanalytic um, uh, interpretation you could apply to these kinds of um, strange combinations. Uh, and this, so Simondo interprets this in terms of um, the, uh, this duality or this splitting uh, of the self um, that is sort of the the way that this paradox of individuality realizes itself in the 18th century uh, in this era of expression. Um, so even in uh, something like sexuality, um, there's a kind of splitting of the self into um, the one who enjoys and the one who is punished or something like that. Um, and and so the the self um, uh, or 
Rousseau as a person is able to um, find uh, enjoyment in, in sexual desire only through um, sort of setting himself up as the one to be punished um, and, and sort of making this uh, kind of split within himself. I think Rousseau was a really, really super liberal at the time. Uh, yeah, he was definitely um, um, like criticized for his um, uh, sort of um, explicitness in terms of, uh, you know, how, how he describes um, his uh, sort of uh, singular sexual desires. Um, he, uh, he was definitely considered uh, or he was criticized as being immoral for, um, you know, expressing these desires uh, in this way. Um, and, uh, yeah, so there's a, I think, um, I mean, in terms of sort of contemporary, um, uh, standards, he, he's fairly team. He's not like, um, describing anything in, uh, explicit terms. He's, he makes sort of allusions to these things, but, uh, for the 18th century reader, he was, um, uh, considered, considered pretty, um, um, sort of, um, extreme in terms of, uh, his, the am amount of, uh, uh, sexual content that was included in his works. Oh, and uh, yeah, 61 has, has posted a, a comment here about uh, Colin Morris's book, The Discovery of the Individual 1050 to 1200, um, uh, a book that I, I don't know actually, but um, that apparently connects the idea of the individual with the um, courtly love tradition. Um, so yeah, that's, that's interesting. I'll have to check that out. Um, okay, so I think um, we're pretty much at time. Uh, let's just see where we are. Yeah, I think we can stop here. Um, we have uh, several more pages on so so we'll probably spend the whole of the next section, the next session on Rousseau, and possibly into the next one. Um, but yeah, let's uh, let's stop here for today. Sounds good. Okay, thank you so much. See you next week. Yeah, thanks everyone. See you next thanks, week. Thanks, Don. Thanks everyone. Bye bye.